Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this episode, the stem cell revolution and how West Nile virus and HIV are connected. But first up, here's the news. Are your ears ringing? Exposure to loud sounds can permanently hurt your hearing by damaging the sensitive hair cells in your ears that detect sound. Musicians and DJs notoriously lose more hearing the longer they work. A study in the journal Neuron reports that a new drug has restored hearing to deaf mice by causing the sensory hair cells to regrow in their ears after they've been deafened by loud noise. The drug LY411575 suppresses a protein called Notch. Notch prevents stem cells from becoming sensory hair cells in the cochlea in your inner ear. Hearing loss from the loss of hair cells affects 250 million people worldwide. So it's hoped that the drug suppressing Notch will have the same benefit for humans. Breast milk protects babies from HIV. The AIDS virus is transmitted in breast milk from HIV-positive mothers, but only 10% of their babies pick up the virus. The reason is a protein in milk called Tennyson C. Tennyson C is protecting babies by acting like an antibody to lock onto a protein on the virus's surface, which disables it. The research was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences as Tennyson C is an innate broad-spectrum HIV-1 neutralizing protein in breast milk. The team at Duke University Medical Center screened milk samples from uninfected women for neutralizing activity against a whole panel of HIV strains. Confirming that all of the detectable HIV neutralization activity was contained in the high molecular weight portion. Then, using a multi-step protein separation process, the researchers narrowed down the detectable HIV neutralization activity to a single protein, and identified it as Tennyson C. Tennyson C is a protein that forms part of the extracellular matrix, or scaffolding, that has previously been known to be involved in fetal development and wound healing. It was unexpected that the protein would also bind to the surface of the HIV viral envelope and inactivate the virus. The protein works by binding to the HIV particle surface receptor, CD4, gumming it up. This stops the virus from entering cells. It becomes neutralized. By capturing and gumming up the virus, the protein provides protection against AIDS to many breastfeeding babies. The World Health Organization's long-standing recommendation has been that HIV-positive mothers shouldn't breastfeed their babies, out of concern that they might transmit the virus. They may have to change their minds. I need to correct an error from my thorium scepticism story from a few weeks ago. I said that in the many decades of the history of nuclear power, Finland is the only nation 
that has safely buried nuclear waste deep underground. I was mistaken, and I apologise. Longtime fact-checker Charles Willock caught this one. The fact is that even Finland doesn't plan to start using its underground nuclear waste repository until the year 2022. For now, there are no nuclear plant operators who are responsibly storing their nuclear waste deep underground. Last week, the documentary film Stem Cell Revolutions was shown in Sydney at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Claire Blackburn, from the Centre for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the UK, has taken stem cell revolutions to audiences around Australia. I saw the film at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney and spoke to her in the Museum Café. Please excuse the noises of people moving chairs and tables at the café. The film is called Stem Cell Revolutions, Vision of the Future. And it's a film which was made by scientists working in collaboration with filmmakers. The idea was to try and put the real science of stem cells onto the big screen, the story that the scientists themselves wanted to tell. It seemed to me there was a dialogue in the film between the scientists and the science fiction writer Margaret Atwood, who had an idea about what she was hoping to get from the research. My role in the film was I'm the scientist part of the team, the science and filmmaker team that made the film. The, film, the main filmmaker part is, uh, was taken by the film director, Amy Hardy, who's a very experienced documentary film director. And the film was funded by a, a grant award from the Wellcome Trust, which is a big, one of the big biomedical science funding charities in the UK and also there was a little bit of funding that came in from the European Union. So Amy and I got the grant to make the film together and we had a particular storyline that we hoped to, to develop in the film. What actually happened was that just after we got the funding a huge scientific breakthrough was made in which a new type of stem cell was discovered called induced pluripotent cells. And without going into that in, in, in any detail, the effect on science was very, very dramatic. And the effect on our story was that the, the, the storyline we had wanted to use to kind of structure our documentary around was obsolete before we'd started to make the film. So we had to cast around to, to think about how we were going to achieve our goal of bringing stem cells onto the big screen through a different kind of story device. And one thing we were very aware of was that this area had captured the imagination of the public and also of a lot of people working in the creative industry, including, um, including writers. And we were both very interested in the work of Margaret Atwood, uh, who's, who, who's a fiction writer who, and a great literary figure, really, whose work for years has really consistently ex explored kind of dystopic futures that could be imagined to arise from recent scientific advances. Uh, so we wanted to bring her into the film so that we as scientists, or scientists who I'm representing as we, 
wouldn't have an easy ride so that, that we would be put on the spot by somebody who was really thinking about what the flip side of our hopes for our research might lead to. And what sort of reactions have you got from the audiences you've shown the film to? We've now shown the film to a great many uh, different audiences. It's been shown uh, in over 50 venues throughout the UK and internationally. The types of audiences that we've shown it to range from general public to schools. We've shown it to politicians and regulators, teachers, all sorts of different people. And we really we get a uniformly a very, very strong response to it. One thing we find that audiences really love is that there's a lot of science in the documentary. We've been very lucky to work with an extremely talented um, animator, Cameron Dukit, uh, to, to, um, who who's really has a, a huge talent for bringing abstract ideas to life in film. And we find people respond very, very strongly to this. They love it. They love the fact that the, sci the science that's presented in the film makes it easy for them to discuss deeper issues and ethical issues associated with stem cell research and regenerative medicine with a panel of scientists who we generally have on, on hand for a question and answer session after the film. And you've been taking the film around Australia? Yeah, we were very lucky to make contact with Megan Muncie from Stem Cells Australia and she has arranged this great tour. Uh, so we've showed the film three times in Melbourne uh, last week. We've also shown it in Brisbane and now in Sydney, all to schools audiences or audiences of teachers. So in, in, in a two-week period, we've shown it to nearly 500 school students, mainly year 9 and 10 students. And again, we've got a really fantastic response. Some of the questions that the students have asked have just been out of this world. They've really been at or even beyond where the cutting edge of science is at the moment. It's just been great. Do you have any favourite questions? Quite often when we do screenings of the film, the audience is kind of mining a furrow together. And we, quite often we get to a point when somebody says, all right, now I'm going to ask a really stupid question. I remember one time somebody said that and then they said, I don't want you to have the impression that I'm a stupid or crazy person, but I want to ask this crazy question. And then they usually come up with some question which is right at the edge of what scientific knowledge is. And it's quite often um, where scientists are really thinking the most challenging issues that they need to find answers to are at the moment. And I really love those moments when they occur. Anything that's in that sort of vein uh, about how stem cells may be used in the future, what the possibilities are about changing different cell types, in the, you know, changing one type of cell to another type of cell in the body. These are all great things. It gives great scope for dialogue uh, with audiences at all sorts of different levels. Well, there were some great questions today about cloning people and curing all disease and whether you could clone from corpses. <laughs> I know, that's the scary side. <laughs> so the students today asked great questions, they really did. They were obviously very taken with the idea of cloning and may it be possible to clone people, may it be possible even to clone, make cloned people from people who've already died. And it's interesting, feeling I got was that they, they didn't think that this was a terrible idea. They didn't seem to be shocked by it, which probably myself, I'm a little bit shocked by it, but 
perhaps to them it may be part of their future. I mean, obviously there are very strict regulations at the moment which prevent anybody pursuing this kind of avenue. But it's interesting that that's what they wanted to talk about most. And, you know, they're also very interested in um, the relationship between stem cells and cancer, which is obviously another very interesting area. And if people want to find out about the film online, where should they look? Uh, they could look in one of two places. They could visit our website, which is www.eurostemcell.org, um, or they could visit the film website, which is stemcellrevolutions.com. And are you expecting it to be on general release DVD or at the movies or on TV soon? It's already been uh, licensed for distribution on TV in Japan, Germany and France. We'd definitely be open to exploring ideas for getting it onto TV in other territories. And we have, um, it's being distributed online and, uh, and as DVDs by a, a, a local company to us in, in Edinburgh called Scottish Documentary Institute Productions. So if you're interested in viewing it or purchasing or using it in schools, you can find it at that website I just mentioned, stemcellrevolutions.com which is part of the STI Productions effort. So the, the film features many of the very leading scientists who are working in the field and also some of the people who have really created the field as it's evolved over the last 50 years. Three of the people who are in the film now have Nobel Prizes for the work that they've done. And I wanted to comment that they all gave their time freely because really freely and very very generously to the film project because they really believe in communicating and going into dialogue with the public around the, the, the work that they've done and also the promise that it's believed to hold for the development of future new medicines. Well Claire Blackburn thank you very much. Thank you very much it's a pleasure. That was Claire Blackburn from the Centre of Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland talking about the documentary film Stem Cell Revolutions. You can find out more at www.eurostemcell.org and stemcellrevolutions.com. And next I spoke with Kate Doherty, the website and online communications manager for Eurostemcell, the European project funded by the European Commission to communicate stem cell research and helping stem cell research become accessible to non-scientists and non-specialist audiences. Kate toured Australia with the film. I spoke with Kate in the museum cafe with a little less background noise, but still some. So there are, I guess, three things that we're trying to promote. We're trying to promote good information, so making good, high-quality, accurate information available. We like to provide tools for educators to help them to teach stem cells and provide good access to cutting-edge science. And we like to promote conversation about stem cell research. So those are kind of three overarching goals and we have a number of different ways that we um, deliver those things. So we have a website. Because we're a European project, we need to deliver materials in multiple languages. So the web is a really efficient way to do that. So we've got a website that's in six languages. So it's eurostemcell.org is the website. Um, and that's available in six languages and almost all of our resources are also available there online to download mostly creative commons license so people can take them and run with them and modify them to suit their circumstances do what they want with them so we have a toolkit for teachers and educators 
is also useful for scientists in their own outreach work if they're going to go and talk to schools. Um, and that includes things like comics. We've got that in paper form and we also have an online interactive comic which incorporates videos and activities. Um, that's called Hope Beyond Hype and that's on the website. Um, we've produced a series of films about different aspects of stem cell research. Um, so we make them available online and we're also working in collaboration with a Scottish documentary institute um, with a film called Stem Cell Revolutions which is a feature documentary um, and so we've also been doing screenings of that followed by discussions with scientists um, so that's another way that we can deliver things. And I saw today you had a game for the students to play outside. Uh, yeah, so the game, obviously game-based learning is something that wor works really well because it gets people active in doing things. So the game that we have, it's called Start as a Stem Cell. It's a floor game. So the, the students have to move around the board physically. It models the blood stem cell system. And so the object of the game, they start in the middle as a stem cell and the, it, it's time-based. So they have a time limit and they have to make as many specialized blood cells within the time as possible and they can compete in teams. So we've used that at science festivals um, or a museum, like museum lets events, that kind of thing. It works quite well with all different ages and different ages get different things about, out of it. But like all of our resources based on the latest science, so we, we contacted a, a, an expert in blood stem cell system to make sure that the pathways shown on the map represent the latest thinking in the field. So we make stuff accessible but always make sure that the science is good. And can people see anything about this game on the website? Yeah, so within the Eurostem Cell Toolkit, um, there's a section with um, that game and some other um, game and kind of interactive resources like that, yeah. So they can download a kit to run the game themselves. And you had a card game as well? Yeah, so there's a, a card game called Cell Families and that's based on the UNO game. So we found that works really well in schools and it's a model that's really familiar, but it uses cells and, and families of cells and teaches some of the, um, the things about cells and stem cells and yeah, about adult stem cells and cells in the body. Do you have any favourite stories about the children's reactions or people's reactions? Well, it's always exciting when you get a reaction. And I think the screenings that we've just run t today and in Brisbane and Melbourne last week, I think it's the questions that the kids ask, really amazing and sometimes strike at the heart of where the science, science is and, and are similar in some ways to the big questions that scientists are working on. And it's just incredible to see that just from a little bit of information and a bit of a story, so they've watched a 71 minute documentary, they can really see through to what the issues are. And that's really inspiring, yeah. Do you have a favorite question? A favorite. There was quite a good one today, which was, can you make stem cells from a dead person? So that was quite nice. Yeah, that's a good one. But, you know, all the questions are good there and they all have something in them that's really interesting. Yeah, because people ask, you know, they seize on what's interesting and where the boundaries are. They find, you know, they find, seem to find the boundaries in their questions. Yeah. Well, Kate Doherty, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Kate Doherty website and online communications manager for Eurostem Cell. You can find the games she spoke about at www.eurostemcell.org under the toolkit menu.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio with Ian Wolfe. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. John August has contributed to Diffusion for many years. This week he joined me to discuss his latest interest, how the same genes you've inherited can infect how you're susceptible to both HIV and West Nile virus. So I'm here with John August, who's been researching HIV genes. So how did you come to this story, John? Well, I do some work on uh, the workers' radio program on Radio Skid Row. I do that with Shard Core. Um, we've had one one thing from there, or I think a few things that have been broadcast on Diffusion. And we had a, a listener there who calls himself Judas Sanctimonious, who sort of drew my attention to this on the uh, Facebook page for that program and basically it sounded a bit strange at first but it was actually quite interesting it's the idea that not everybody uh, I should I should say at least for some strains of HIV some people have a particular mutation that makes them resistant to that HIV so uh, this mutation, it's called the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. Now CCR5, that's a, a protein that does stuff uh, on white blood cells. And Delta 32 means it's a deletion mutation. So you don't, the, the white blood cells don't have the capacity to make this protein. And um, that means that when the HIV virus is attaching to the white blood cell, it does it in two stages. Um, first, it attaches to a so-called CD4 protein, and then it after that attaches to the CCR5 protein. And I think that protein, that's actually a receptor. So the uh, basically white blood cell then says, aha, there's a virus here, we'll, we'll basically absorb that. And the problem is the HIV virus actually takes over the white blood cell. So if you're missing uh, this, this particular protein, it means that the white blood cell won't actually absorb that, that virus into it. And again, it's, it's a deletion mutation, uh, delta 32, which means the, uh, you, you don't actually have the capacity to do that. And you actually have to have this uh, mutation in both chromosomes, because if you have the, the regular, uh, regular gene in one of them, you will still obviously generate some white blood cells that are susceptible to this. So, um, so it does mean that your some people can actually be resistant to a particular strain of HIV. Not all strains of HIV uh, have have this going on. Um, now, there is actually a story. Um, you know, it was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine that there was someone who was suffering with both leukemia and HIV, and they were treated with chemotherapy. And that basically destroyed their uh, bone marrow. And they had a bone marrow transplant from a donor who was known to have this uh, CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. And um, they were actually uh, resistant to HIV. And after three years, they were pronounced cured. So, you know, so this is, is quite interesting. And you might think, well, hang on, you're missing out on a protein. You know, did it actually do something worthwhile? I mean, a lot of the time... Uh, you know, basically the body has enough other things going on that maybe it can cover for it to some degree. But it does seem that if you have this mutation, you're 
more resistant to this strain of HIV, but you're actually also more susceptible to something called the Nile River virus. So obviously, in base, basically, the Nile River virus doesn't take over the white blood cells, it would seem, and it's actually good if the blood cells can sort of chew up the Nile River virus. They're not able to do that when you have this Delta 32 mutation, but it does actually make you resistant to that strain of HIV. So if we ended up with some sort of drug based on blocking this protein and giving people the same sort of resistance that those with this mutation have, we'd also have to cure them or find a different way to prevent them getting West Nile virus. Otherwise, we're just leaving them all susceptible. Well, I suppose if you have both HIV and West Nile virus in an area, then you're basically going to be hit with one or the other. But if you you can at least uh, treat people for this strain of HIV where there's none of the West Nile virus. And I suppose, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just speculating ad hoc here, um, not medically qualified. But, um, you know, yes, if people ever got to the stage of uh, you, you know, making changes to, to our white blood cells, and that would be a change to make. But equally, you could get a lot of dummy uh, HIV viruses or at least protein packets that could actually get to these um, white blood cells and, I guess, gum them up so that they wouldn't be available, perhaps, to uh, grab hold of the HIV virus. But wouldn't they then still be vulnerable to West Nile? Um, yes, I guess so. And also, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe it'll just grab hold of all these dummy particles and start absorbing them. Um, the, I suppose the question is whether you could actually come up with a protein that would basically gum up this CCR5 protein without itself being absorbed into the white blood cell. I guess that would be the challenge. Thank you, John August. Thank you, Ian Wolfe. That was John August explaining the genetic relation between how our bodies defend against HIV and West Nile viruses. You can hear John every month on Workers Radio on Radio Skid Row. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like our Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai in Sydney, and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station in the US. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Diffusion is funded solely by the Fixed Income Bank of Ian, which lacks any kind of business model. Please send email to science at diffusionradio.com to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or if you'd like to sponsor the show. Or look for the donate button on the diffusionradio.com website to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'd love to travel to Melbourne to record interviews at the Future of Technology and Science conference at the end of the month, if only there was a way to pay for it. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.